This, 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 this is K-U-T. K-U-T. K-U-T, Austin. Stop. This is KUT Weekend for the third weekend of November 2017. Thank you for listening. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5, the NPR station in Austin, Texas. Here's what we got for you this week. Despite presidential promises, the central Texas town of Rockdale prepares for its coal plant to close. You know, when Trump ran for president, one of his key things was keeping the coal industry going. Sexual harassment permeating the Texas capital. It's just rampant. It's not a new thing. It's been around for quite some time, probably since women started working there. And why drivers who merge late, as annoying as they may be, could help reduce traffic congestion. Alternating and taking turns getting into the merge point flows much more efficiently. Those stories and more in this edition of KUT Weekend. What could you create on a vast open frontier? What could you accomplish in one of the most business-friendly states in the nation? This is a promotional video produced by Milam County, not far outside Austin. So, what could you do? Imagination is the only limit. And at Milam County, it's nothing but blue sky. The boundless new Amazon frontier. Yep, Amazon Frontier. They were trying to recruit, and still are trying to recruit, the online retail giant to set up its second headquarters in Milam County. They're trying to get more business there. And it's in no small part because the energy company Luminant announced it was closing a coal-fired power plant there early next year. That knocked the town of Rockdale on its heels. Rockdale is about an hour northeast of Austin. Hundreds of people there work at the Sandow power plant and the mine that feeds it. And now that they're shutting down, people are wondering how Rockdale can recover. KUT's Mose Bouchelle has that story. News that the plant was closing broke on Friday the 13th. <laughs> you would think you could put off till Monday to make that announcement. <laughs> but uh, that's how it went down. That's Stephen Garza. He was an electrician at the plant. He and his wife were driving their son to school when a coworker called and told him. I said, that was Tommy. He said, they're going to close the plant down, you know. Michael Morgan worked for a contractor at the plant. He also heard from a friend. I was really in shock. At first, he thought it was a joke. Uh, very difficult going home on Friday the 13th and telling my wife and kids that I was done. All told, about 450 people are going to lose their jobs at the Rockdale Coal Plant and the nearby mine. That's not counting over 30 contracting companies that might also lay people off around this small Central Texas community. I'm right off Main Street in downtown Rockdale, and uh, it is really quiet here. I'm just about the only person on the street. The town is only about 5,600 people, so you can see how this could really hurt. We're really nervous about uh, the trickle-down effect. Rebecca Vasquez runs a gun store on Main Street and heads the local Chamber of Commerce. She says everyone's bracing for the loss of business as workers stop spending. She's also surprised the closures came at all, considering the coal-friendly administration in the White House. You know, when Trump ran for president, one of his key things was keeping the coal industry going. And I really feel like if he knew this was happening, he might do something about it. The thing is, he's tried. The administration's slashed regulations and backed out of major environmental commitments that were harmful to coal power, including pulling the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Accord and tearing up the Obama administration's clean power plan. None of these moves helped save coal in Rockdale. Kind of puts it in perspective, you know, that that it's a real push. Here's plant worker Stephen Garza again. Guess we're going to swing towards natural gas generation to power the grid. I actually met Garza at the local unemployment office. Staffer Julia Cardona says 
None of her clients there expect the coal jobs to come back. It's just not very efficient to make electricity from coal. You know, we don't see any more rotary phones or even plan on them coming back. So I kind of look at that in the same way. So the big question here is what jobs could replace the ones that are lost? At Lee's Landing Restaurant, City Council member Joyce Daly and her table mates are having stew. I'd just come in looking for lunch. There was Daly and Planning Commissioner Doug Williams at a corner table discussing the plant closure. We're all talking about what's going to happen next. How do you prepare for that? I don't know that you can. Daly says Milam County, where Rockdale is, put in an application to host the new Amazon headquarters. Most people here don't think they have a chance, but say it's a good way of promoting the community. We'll take anything, yeah. That's Lee Parsley, the Lee from Lee's Landing. We do have a great deal to offer. Including abundant land, water, and an hour's drive to fast-growing Austin. If we can hold on long enough, Austin will be here. Doug Williams again. That's years down the road right now, so. Then, as if on cue, Lee Parsley gestures to a man walking by. He just moved from Austin. He just moved from Austin, he says. Oh, you just moved here from Austin? Yes. Actually, from New York by way of Austin. Do you mind if I ask your name? Uh, Anthony Fritz. What brought you here? Change of pace from New York City. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) How's it been for you? Uh, Fantastic. It's the best place right here. Back at the unemployment office, plant workers Stephen Garza and Michael Morgan agree. They're both from here. They say they want to find jobs nearby, but it's hard. One thing I've noticed, though, is is, uh, most of them are going to be lower paying jobs than what we had here, and you're going to have to commute for them. I will have to pick up and leave if it comes to that, but I don't want to. This is my home. I've got my my family's here, and and I don't want to leave. The Sandow Coal Power Plant closes on January 11th. Mose Bouchelle, KT News. Major changes are on the way for Austin's public transportation system. The Capital Metro Board of Directors has approved an overhaul of bus service in this city. As KUT's Saida Hassan reports, the plan emphasizes frequency. Cap Metro will more than double the number of bus routes that run every 15 minutes, the idea being that riders won't have to consult a schedule. The service will be available seven days a week, almost all day long. But there are trade-offs. Cap Metro will eliminate 13 bus routes, two of which will leave people with no alternative service. Before the vote, the board heard from several concerned riders who said they'd have trouble walking to a farther stop. Board member Dalia Garza, who is also an Austin City Council member, was one of two people who voted against the plan. There was a lot of flaws in the public input process. Other elected officials on this board are going to be the ones fielding the calls from people who are having a really difficult time because of these changes. The board also decided to preserve the existing Metro Access service indefinitely. It provides on-demand rides to people with disabilities. All service changes are set to go into effect in June 2018. Saida Hassan, KUT News. The final draft of new city rules determining what you can build where in Austin won't come out when expected. KUT's Audrey McGlinchey reports on more Code Next delays. City spokesperson David Green says there are two reasons for the delay. One, city staff need more time to incorporate community feedback. 
two, they want to make sure this final draft is well proofread. This will be the staff recommendation document to the board's commissions and council for action. So we want to make sure it is as clean as possible with all the T's crossed and all the I's dotted and, uh, and that they get a good working document from which to begin their deliberations. A new development code has been in the works since 2012. Originally, council members had planned on voting on the code as early as February. A final version of the code is now expected to get to city council in April. Audrey McGlinchey, KUT News. State lawmakers met this week to discuss the effects of Hurricane Harvey on schools in Texas. KUT's Claire McInerney reports on how the storm could change how the state handles school accountability this year. Superintendents from school districts in the storm's path testified before the House Public Education Committee. They talked about how students are still homeless, staying with family members or jumping between hotels. They also explained how teachers are reeling from the storm, trying to attend to damaged homes while also giving academic and psychological support to their students. Because of this trauma, some of those superintendents are asking the state to not give these schools the A through F grades based on test scores from the state statewide assessment, called the STAR test. Pausing accountability is a hard ask, according to Texas Commissioner for Education Mike Morath. Federal and Texas laws require the state to rate schools. A waiver can be uh, or would be granted. Uh, There's no precedence for that in federal history. 12,000 students in Texas are attending school away from their home district because of the storm. Claire McInerney, KUT News. It's been several weeks since funding for the Federal Children's Health Insurance Program, also known as CHIP, expired. And Congress still has not reauthorized the program. Here in Texas, it's hard to tell exactly when the money will run out. State officials say it could happen as early as January. KUT's Ashley Lopez reports that local advocates say that means the program could be thrust into chaos in a matter of weeks. Laura Guerra-Cardis works with the Children's Defense Fund here in Austin. She helps families enroll in CHIP. She says her main worry right now is a state law requiring officials to give families on CHIP a 30-day notice before the program shuts down. It is very likely that sometime in the month of December, and it could be as early as December 1st, uh, families in Texas will start receiving letters about coverage termination. Gara Cardis says about 400,000 children are enrolled in CHIP here in Texas. And unless Congress acts quickly, lots of families could receive that termination letter right around Christmas. Even getting a letter like that, even if the program is eventually refunded, is going to cause incredible levels of stress for most families and, and chaos for some who cannot um, afford to have a gap in coverage for their children. She says that includes families of children who are receiving ongoing therapies or rely on medication. Gercardis says that will mean some tough financial decisions. And that's the stuff we do know. Another issue here is that we know very little about what will happen after those letters get sent out. For example, we don't know what happens if the money gets reinstated. I don't think state law ever got that granular. That's Ann Dunkelberg with the Center for Public Policy Priorities. She's an expert on Medicaid and CHIP policy here in Texas. And even she can't say what to expect in the coming weeks because there's very little policy around this. Nobody was looking for, you know, anticipating this kind of circumstance. So we've just never gotten this close to a 
you know, to a deadline. Right now, the plan is to shift the families that lose coverage to the online marketplace created by the Affordable Care Act. But Dunkelberg says there are very few scenarios where this shift doesn't cause a gap in coverage. For one, timing is really tight. It's possible enrollment for the marketplace ends around the same time families get those termination letters. And then Dunkelberg says not all families will qualify for subsidies to help pay for plans in the marketplace. In which case, it's really unlikely that their low-income family will be able to enroll if they don't have a subsidy. Um, and then the other thing is the, the computer systems. Those computer systems at healthcare.gov are programmed to send people who qualify for CHIP to enroll in CHIP. If there's no CHIP, it will take time to smooth out those logistics. Dunkelberg says any scenario here is going to be complicated and hard to plan for. That's why she says Congress needs to pass CHIP funding before December. Ashley Lopez, KUT News. <laughs> For years, decades even, there have been allegations that sexual harassment at the Texas Capitol is pervasive. And now the Texas Tribune is out with a story, interviewing more than two dozen current and former lawmakers and legislative aides who spoke about that and how those who endure such treatment have little to no recourse. Alexa Ura is one of the four Texas Tribune reporters with bylines on the story. Hi, Alexa. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for your time. So you have a number of stories here from women who spoke to you, but in many cases chose to remain anonymous for concerns of retaliation or that their careers could be sabotaged. What did you hear? You know, really, the the common thread in all of their stories is that sexual harassment at the Capitol is just rampant. It's not a new thing. It's been around for quite some time, probably since women started working there. The allegations really varied, and and there was sort of a wide range of sexual harassment that they told us was taking place, anything from sort of leering looks to suggestive comments, some of it a little bit more grotesque. We heard from one staffer who was at a party and said a lot lawmaker put his hand up her skirt and assault and sexually assaulted her. We heard from another staffer who said she was leaving an end of se- legislative session party when another lawmaker grabbed her hand and licked it. Another staffer told us she had been cornered by a lawmaker who told her they should get together and somehow managed to track down her cell phone and called her early the next morning and sort of followed the same line of comments toward her. So, it, you know, there's a wide range of this, but, but the common thing is that it's pretty rampant and pretty pervasive. What did former state Senator Wendy Davis tell you? You know, she recounted an experience she had uh, during her time at the legislature where she was at an event and she was talking to a man who happened to be a first term member of the House who groped her, who sort of reached over and grabbed the side of her breast. And she mentioned that unlike a lot of the staffers, she had some form of recourse. She told her colleagues and this lawmaker faced some repercussions in that his legislation wasn't moving. And he eventually apologized. But the power dynamics of the Capitol are set up to where staffers would not have anywhere near that sort of recourse when they're trying to deal with the sexual harassment they've been subjected to. So you report on how House policy would have employees uh, make any complaints to the chair of the House Administration Committee, currently held by Republican State Representative Charlie Guerin. What did he say to you when you tried to ask him about this? 
You know, we, we went to Representative Guerin after we had filed a request for a complaint that had been submitted to his committee as the House's sexual harassment policy lays out. And really, he said, you know, we don't have any and I don't speak in ifs and I'm not going to talk about this right now. He said there's nothing to talk about because I haven't received any complaints. And after hearing from staffers about how unsafe they would have felt to have even reported this or, or have spoken out about this, it was a bit of a surprise response. On the Senate side, we talked to Patsy Spa, who's the secretary of the Senate and is in charge of fielding complaints in that chamber. And, and she spent a little bit more time on the phone with us explaining what the process, how they would have investigated some a complaint. But she also pointed out that she hasn't received any formal complaints. And I think really that, that lack of complaints gets to how women at the Capitol don't feel that the, the methods that are set up for them to report this would actually protect them. You reported that the sexual harassment policies at the state capitol are so outdated that they reference a state agency that no longer exists. Yeah, both policies uh, make reference to the Texas Commission on Human Rights, which actually no longer exists. In 2015, it was moved to the Texas Workforce Commission, which handles these sort of complaints through its civil rights division. And so both of them make that reference and oftentimes in, in the House policy direct women to file complaints there if they do not want to file them to House administration. Does it seem like there is any will to toughen these policies, update them, and try and root out the problem of sexual harassment at the Texas Capitol? Well, we did try to ask Chairman Guerin if he thought there needed to be an update to it and said he had no no further comments on it. But just today, we've already heard from State Representative Linda Koop, a Republican from Dallas who sent a letter to Governor Greg Abbott and legislative leaders asking to create some sort of protocol for those working in the Capitol to better protect them from sexual harassment, saying that clearly what was in place wasn't enough. We've also heard from a couple of other legislators who said they're considering legislation and in ways to fix that, either creating an independent oversight entity or um, creating mandatory sexual harassment training. Obviously, all of this thing, legislation can only be passed when they're in session and they won't be back until January 2019. Have any lawmakers taken it upon themselves to adopt policies for their own offices related to harassment? Yeah, the one of the lawmakers that we spoke to was State Senator Sylvia Garcia, a Democrat from Houston, who basically created an additional sexual harassment policy for her office. Her hope was to sort of facilitate this reporting process and really instill in her staffers that they could go directly to their chief of staff or to the senator herself if they had any sort of sexual harassment issues or any incidents that they were dealing with. But for the most part, what we heard from staffers is that it's really handled on a case-by-case situation. If you're working in an office where you don't have a supportive boss or if your boss is doing the sexual harassing, there are obviously fewer options for those women. You have invited anyone who has experienced sexual harassment at the Texas Capitol to reach out to the team of reporters who's been working on this confidentially. How can people do that? So at the bottom of our story, we've linked to all of our um, direct desk lines and emails, and those are also available at the bottom of our homepage at texastribune.org. We've also got a signal account through which folks can reach us, but and obviously our, our hope is to work with folks and, and protect their confidentiality. Alexa Ura is a reporter at the Texas Tribune, speaking to us about their reporting on uh, how at the Texas Capitol, many victims of sexual harassment must fend for themselves. 
Alexa, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Columbus Crew is in the midst of a playoff run that could land them in the Major League Soccer Cup final. But rather than enjoy a great season, Ohio's capital city and the team's ownership are at an impasse that could mean the crew moves to Austin. And as KUT's Jimmy Moss reports, that would be a dream and a nightmare for two fan bases. It's just been kind of crazy. That's Morgan Hughes of Columbus, Ohio. He is one of the organizers of the effort to keep the city's soccer team from leaving town. Hughes became a crew fan the day they announced the city would get the first MLS franchise. He's been watching his team beat some long odds this season to advance to the Eastern Conference Finals, all while the company that owns the team is threatening to move the crew to Austin. I don't know that Precourt Sports Ventures you know, gave any thought to timing, but... <laughs> It certainly feels like we're living kind of the third act of a really, really good movie. What Hughes probably has in mind are those sports dramas where the good guys pull out the win in the end. But we may actually be in the middle of the third act of one of those love triangles that fuels so many teen angst films. Anthony Precourt owns the crew. He says he would need a new stadium close to downtown Columbus to compete with other MLS teams. So far, Columbus isn't ready to help make that happen. Precourt wants his team to make the kind of money that teams in Seattle, Portland, and Atlanta are making. So he looked around the U.S. and saw Austin. Uh, it's just, you know, it's just got a lot of the boxes that MLS likes to check, but um, as, as they've mentioned previously, um, they're more interesting in where Austin is going and growing. Josh Babetsky is the founder of the MLS in Austin Supporters Group. He's been trying to lure an MLS expansion team to Austin. Then Precourt announced a possible move to the city, the largest U.S. metro area without a top-tier sports team. You know, I think it's a real recognition of, you know, Austin arriving on that, that larger-scale metro scene, um, as well as just a huge personal moment for, you know, somebody who's now spent about four years trying to, uh, trying to will this into existence. Austin has everything pre-court would like, demographics, population, culture, which, if you take a step back, are a lot like Columbus, the one who has been there all along. You probably couldn't pick a more similar city in the country if you were trying. You know, we are both state capitals. We both have gigantic universities who dominate not just the city, but the city sports scene. We're both up-and-coming millennial meccas. The absurdness of how similar we are. Austin is Columbus and Columbus is Austin on so many levels. Another thing both cities have in common, neither has a new soccer stadium near downtown. To find out who will, you'll have to stay for the end of the movie. Jimmy Moss, KUT News. We've all been there stuck in merging lanes of traffic near construction or an on-ramp when someone zooms ahead to cut in front of an entire line of cars. And you might even be in that situation right now. It can be infuriating. But it's also part of a larger strategy to cut down on congestion. As KUT's Andrew Weber reports, it's technically the right thing to do. 
It's called a zipper merge. The idea is that when multiple lanes merge down, drivers are supposed to go all the way to the front of their lane. Then, and this is the hard part, you're supposed to let someone else ahead of you. In other words, use all the available lane space and merge at the last minute like a zipper. It's a much more efficient way to merge in theory. I refuse to accept that. That's my editor, Matt Largy. Obviously, he disagrees. I see all these people just driving up to the front of the line and then expecting people to let them in. Like they, like they own the place. And it drives me crazy. I joined Matt last week during the most problematic stretch of his morning commute from South Austin, the intersection of Mopac and 290 West. The on-ramp whittles down from two lanes to one. All right, and so we're turning onto this frontage road right here. There's a line of cars, I see. Yeah, this is, what, this is what it looks Three like lanes. pretty much every day. We were mid-merge near the back of a long line of cars waiting to get on Austin's most popular parking lot. I don't, like... So you're about to merge. I, I am. I'm, I'm way back at the end of the line here, and I don't want to be that guy who goes, who just shoots up to the front, although this guy behind me is really, he's really pushing me to keep going. That's a Mustang. Yeah, that Mustang really wants me to keep going. So I'm gonna I'm gonna hop in here in the well what's the middle lane right now? Way back here because, because I think because I think that's the polite thing to do. He's right. It's the polite thing to do, but it's not necessarily the right thing to do. Anytime two lanes merge together, using all of the available space up until the merge could theoretically cut that line by a lot at least when you're traveling at low speeds. Transportation walks like Bob Brighty of the Texas Transportation Institute called that line of traffic a queue. Let's just say it was a you know, lane closure and it was two miles long. If you could utilize all of the available capacity, then your queue is only one mile long. And typically the one mile long with people alternating and taking turns getting into the merge point flows much more efficiently than, you know, the queue that's two miles long and growing. So, say you're in the left lane and it's about to merge into the right-hand lane. Ideally, you drive all the way to the front of your lane, stop, and then merge into the right lane. In transportation speak, it's called a late merge. It hasn't quite caught on in Texas, but it has a long track record of cutting down on congestion in states that have pushed the technique. A 2008 study in Minnesota found late merges cut traffic by half on merging roadways there. And Bridey says there's an added benefit. People generally respond better just in a traffic situation when they're moving, even if it's at a slow speed, but if they're making progress and moving, human behavior is, okay, life isn't all that bad. Whereas if you're in a stop and go situation and brakes are constantly going off and those types of things, uh, you know, uh, emotions start to rise. So it's something TxDOT has been implementing in work zones along roads like I-35. But there are obstacles. People like Matt want to force a merge, which futzes up the whole queue. This creates shockwaves that reverberate through the line of traffic. And those jerks who drive all the way up to the end and merge late, those folks are called queue jumpers, they have the same effect. But the biggest obstacle, and the biggest caveat underlying the entire principle of this is simple. People don't want to share. They always think they're right, and sometimes they take matters into their own hands, especially when they're behind the wheel. A 2000 study from TxDOT found everyone, whether they're doing a late merge or those who went as far as to straddle two lanes to prevent people from going all the way to the end of the lane that's ending, they thought they were right. 
So TxDOT uses signs at late merges, telling drivers to stay in their lane or to take turns or to prepare to merge. They've even done what's called a dynamic late merge, where those signs alternate based on traffic conditions. They've even stationed cops near merges to coax folks into following the signs. Back in traffic, Matt agrees signs might be helpful, but he echoes TxDOT's problem. There has to be public buy-in. Okay, but everybody has to be doing that. And you don't think that's possible? That's not possible, because everybody is just looking out for themselves. All right, we finally made it onto Mopac, though. If more people knew about the merge, Bridey says more people would do it. It would cut down on congestion, and it would lead to fewer crashes. It's an education issue, though, really. It's something new for the drivers. What you're trying to reduce is you're trying to reduce those, those... Shockwaves in the, in the traffic stream. Shockwaves cause accidents. So remember, stay in your lane, merge late if it's safe, and just don't be a jerk. Andrew Weber, KUG News. That's KUT Weekend for the third weekend of November 2017. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast at weekend.kut.org. Send me an email if you have questions or comments, nathan at kut.org. Our theme music is by RAC. Have a wonderful day. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5 at kut.org.